coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. And a happy hump day. So today's the big day, right? We're going to, well, for those who are inclined to consider Ron DeSantis entering the presidential race a big day, it's a big day. Because today is the day he's going to go live on Twitter with Elon Musk and announce his candidacy for the GOP nomination for President of the United States. Andy Borowitz, by the way, uh, satirist with uh, The New Yorker, <laughs> he likes to throw out tweets and Facebook posts that look like headlines. And uh, Andy Borowitz posts earlier today, DeSantis hopes to seem like normal person by appearing next to Elon Musk. <laughs> Oh, boy. But it it got me to thinking about the current slate of GOP candidates. And it's hard not to notice the kind of candidates that lag in the polls versus those that thrive in polling. Now, DeSantis hasn't officially entered the race, but he will have by the end of show today, right? He's going to go on. Twitter and roll out the launch video and play footsies with Elon Musk on Twitter and look all cozy and whatnot. Elon, by the way, has said he's not endorsing it. Why do I care who Elon Musk is going to endorse? I don't care what any CEO is going to say about endorsing a presidential candidate. But that was a, a, a question yesterday when NBC News released the information. Um, it got me to thinking about the disconnect and why there's this widening gulf between Donald Trump, who in Georgia is polling at 40%, Ron DeSantis polling at 32% of likely GOP voters in a most recent landmark communications polling. That's 72% of likely Republican voters. 72%. Those two guys alone have 72%. Brian Kemp, the current governor of the state of Georgia, hasn't announced he's going to run. By all indications, he won't. He's probably going to run for the Senate against John Ossoff, my guess. Anyway, he pulls 7%. 7% in the state that he governs. And then you've got Tim Scott and Nikki Haley, the guy whose name I forget. And I know how to pronounce I just forget his name. What's his name? Yes, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. I, I can say the name, I just never remember the name. Which is already... Not good for him. All those folks pull in the single digits. If they even get to the full digit. 72% likely Georgia voters. Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis. Which tells you something that should be concerning in that that 72% of likely GOP Georgia voters who have absolutely no appetite for uniting the country. They choose division over unity. They choose our way or no way over compromise and governance. It's it's very concerning. It really does concern me. It seriously concerns me. You don't see those sort of staunch posturing type candidates from the left. I mean, the debt ceiling fight will tell you that. 
there were no debt ceiling fights when Donald Trump was president. Three times he needed the debt ceiling passed. Three times he got the debt ceiling passed. No conditions. A friend of mine, and I, in fact, my financial advisor and I were on the phone earlier today, and he's huffing and puffing about government, and he's trying to get his passport renewed, and apparently there are issues with that. Didn't know of. I hope mine's not going to be an issue. <laughs> Just went and got my application done a couple months ago for a trip in November. Come on. Nonetheless, he's just huffing and puffing. And, and the debt ceiling thing. Why is this waiting to the last minute? And that's just it. it. It really wasn't a last minute thing. Why should Joe Biden expect the GOP to act any different to him than the Democratic Party acted towards Donald Trump when the debt ceiling needed to be raised those three times when he was president? I know. I mean, listen, I, I say this stuff because in black and white, that's how we should see it. I, I know that Republicans treat debt and deficit spending differently depending on when they're in power and when they're not. I get it. What I don't get is this appeal to divisiveness, the own the libs wing of the GOP that also wants to talk about how much they love our country, how much they're proud to be Americans, how patriotic they are. And at the same time, 72% likely GOP Georgia voters choose division over unity. It's alarming, is it not? DeSantis, Trump, likely to be the two consumers of oxygen in the room. And on the left, for better or for worse, Democrats, we liberals, we're, 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 we're painted into a corner here. Joe Biden's our guy. Despite the fact that his poll numbers, favorability numbers, keep slipping. A lot of that is messaging, poor messaging. Marketing. I mean, my inbox I get from Democrats or Democratic operatives or organizations, Biden's campaign, please for money. God, please, for God's sakes, send me something else. Send me something other than please for money and encouragement to call this number and tell so and so. Come on. A lot of his favorability issues are age, and a lot of it is the fact that just from the jump, you take 100% of the American population. If you're a Democrat, you're not going to get 45% of that, period. Same for the Republican side. You're not going to get 45%. It's that other 10% that's in the middle that is malleable. And unfortunately, Joe Biden can never change his age in reverse. That's never going to change. That's never going to get better. And Kamala Harris is the vice president. He's not going to change that. She's frankly not a highly popular person herself. And again, a lot of that is opposition chipping away at her for years. A lot of that is that she's sort of been tucked away behind the scenes, not out in front much of this presidency, they'll tell us otherwise. As, as, the, as the, the race heats up and we get the general election season, 
I'm sure we'll see a lot more of her and we'll hear stories about things that she did that we didn't even know about. And that's, to me, that's a problem too. We, we need to know. We need to know now. We need to be gaining steam heading into this cycle. But you don't see posturing from the left about division. Joe Biden, for all his pluses and faults, Joe Biden had been a U.S. senator for quite a while. He comes from an era where things were getting done by meeting in the middle. He continues that route as president, much to the chagrin of those of us on the left, myself included, who would prefer that he just throw caution to the wind, say that I'm a one-term guy, grab the pen, start executive ordering us to goals that the American public wants to meet. And even some that they may pull they don't want, but actually do. The American population is not happy with the Supreme Court. As of earlier this month, as a matter of fact, uh, polling revealed that just 44% of Americans surveyed hold a favorable view of the Supreme Court. And if you think that's bad, that's actually up from after the Dobbs decision ended Roe v. Wade. You know, it's funny, I, I almost text messaged a conservative friend of mine to ask, so who, who are you backing so far that has announced or was about to announce? And, and I, I honestly just did not want to go down the rabbit hole of discussing the, pro, uh, discussing the pros and the cons of each candidate because I can't find a pro of many of them at all. I think as far as like, who would I want to have a beer with? Remember that? That was a question that was asked a lot. Who would I want to have a beer with? Like, I'd, lo- I'd love to sit down and talk with Tim Scott. I'd probably enjoy a conversation with Nikki Haley. I don't want either of them in the White House, but I could, I could sit down and have a discussion with them, and I feel like it would be a rational, tangible discussion that in a political vacuum where you just remove all the hyper-partisanship that exists today, if I had to sit with either or both of them, and hash out solutions, compromise. I feel like those two folks are two reasonable adults. Maybe even, to some extent, Chris Christie. To some extent. Ron DeSantis has no appetite for compromise. He's governed Florida in just that manner. What did Nikki Haley call him? Trump without the charm. That's Nikki Haley. A Republican, also a candidate for president, but still, it's not exactly charming. We saw how Donald Trump would govern. We know how he would govern. His way or the highway, hyperpartisan to a fault. And this is, I think, where some of the disdain for Joe Biden comes in from the center left and left, because he hasn't governed that way. He hasn't said, and obviously you've got to have a filibuster-proof Senate and the House. He had that for two years. My way or the highway, it's just never something that Democrats have ever done. They've always tried to be the adult in the room, to try compromise, to try dialogue, back and forth. And, And maybe, you know, maybe... Joe and Kevin McCarthy will get this debt ceiling thing worked out. Whereas partisans on the left are screaming, 14th Amendment, just do it, just do it. 
like I have, like I have said, he should do about his presidency in general. Executive order your way out, man. Serve that one term and set the table for the next generation. I don't know what drives President Biden. I think he legitimately believes he's the best man for the job in the moment. And there aren't enough people in his ear who are going to tell him otherwise. But I maintain it would have been the right decision all along to have made this a one-term scenario and set the table for the next person. Because he's damned if he do, damned if he does. With the right, he's never going to win them over. With a lot on the left, he's going to be the president who was president when Roe v. Wade was taken. Trans rights taken. Gun violence continues. Immigration's still a problem. The economy, perilous. He's always going to be the guy who was president when that happened. And so his approval numbers are going to be what they are. And he's never going to be able to change that. A taste of what the Ron DeSantis presidency would look like next on The Ron Show. Welcome back to The Ron Show. Second half of the show, we talk with Craig Harrington from Media Matters for America on how American journalists, especially the newspapers, are really mishandling this debt ceiling crisis. We talked a lot yesterday about how locally the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is just screwing the pooch left and right when it comes to how they cover the Atlanta Public Safety Training Facility, a.k.a. Cop City, being built in Southwest DeKalb. Of course, the implication of bias is more than just an implication when their parent company is a mega donor to the Atlanta Police Foundation that is putting a lot of money into that facility. And listen, I I used to work in print journalism uh, in high school and college. They were not well-staffed in the 90s, and they're even worse staffed now. I was in Mobile, Alabama, having lunch on my way to New Orleans a couple weeks ago, right? Was it last week? No, last week. Stopped and had lunch with my buddy Pablo, and we, we went by a building that is like a children's art center or museum or something like that downtown. I'm like, what was this building? And he said it was the Mobile Press Register building. I said, oh, well, where are they now? He said, they're gone. Mobile, Alabama, not a small city, not a small market. It is a top 100 media market. I know that because I worked in radio doesn't have a daily newspaper. That's a real thing in a lot of cities. Anyway, Craig Harrington from Media Matters for America on to discuss print media's botching of the debt ceiling coverage. I wanted to give you a taste of what a Ron DeSantis presidency in the United States would look like. Never mind that he's gone to war with Disney. Never mind that he took it upon himself to eschew the advice of experts in science and medicine. So you can conclude that Mr. Arrogant, the next pandemic, if he were president, he's going to completely eschew the experts. He, in fact, criticizes Donald Trump for listening to experts at all when he was president in the infancy of COVID-19. A one-size-fits-all bullheaded approach is going to get people killed. Not only is he whitewashing history, book banning away, even the inaugural poem at Joe Biden's inauguration recited by Amanda Gorman, an African-American female, has now been banned. Listen to this and tell me why this needs to be banned. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? The loss we carry, a sea we must wade. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace. In the norms and notions of what just is, isn't always just is and yet the dawn is ours before we knew it somehow we do it somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation 
that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. We, the successors of a country and a time where a skinny black girl descended from slaves and raised by a single mother can dream of becoming president only to find herself reciting for one. And yes, we are far from polished, far from pristine, but that doesn't mean we are striving to form a union that is perfect. We are striving to forge our union with purpose, to compose a country committed to all cultures, colors, characters, and conditions of man. And so we lift our gaze not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. We close the divide because we know to put our future first. We must first put our differences aside. We lay down our arms so we can reach out our arms to one another. We seek harm to none and harmony for all. Let the globe, if nothing else, say this is true. That even as we grieved, we grew. That even as we hurt, we hoped. That even as we tired, we tried. That we'll forever be tied together, victorious. Not because we will never again know defeat, but because we will never again sow division. Scripture tells us to envision that everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. If we're to live up to our own time, then victory won't lie in the blade, but in all the bridges we've made. That is the promised glade, the hill we climb, if only we dare it. Because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. We've seen a force that would shatter our nation rather than share it would destroy our country if it meant delaying democracy. And this effort very nearly succeeded. But while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. In this truth, in this faith we trust, for while we have our eyes on the future, history has its eyes on us. This is the era of just redemption. We feared it at its inception. We did not feel prepared to be the heirs of such a terrifying hour, but within it we found the power to author a new chapter, to offer hope and laughter to ourselves. So, while once we asked... How could we possibly prevail over catastrophe? Now we assert. How could catastrophe possibly prevail over us? We will not march back to what was, but move to what shall be, a country that is bruised, but whole, benevolent, but bold, fierce, and free. We will not be turned around or interrupted by intimidation because we know our inaction and inertia will be the inheritance of the next generation. Our blunders become their burdens. But one thing is certain. If we merge mercy with might and might with right, then love becomes our legacy and change our children's birthright.
So let us leave behind a country better than the one we were left with every breath from my bronze-pounded chest. We will raise this wounded world into a wondrous one. We will rise from the gold-limbed hills of the west. We will rise from the wind-swept northeast where our forefathers first realized revolution. We will rise from the lake-rimmed cities of the Midwestern states. We will rise from the sun-baked south. We will rebuild reconcile and recover in every known nook of our nation in every corner called our country our people diverse and beautiful will emerge battered and beautiful when day comes we step out of the shade aflame and unafraid the new dawn blooms as we free it for there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it if only we're brave enough to be it that is Amanda Gorman in the Hill We Climb, recited at Joe Biden's inaugural in 2021, and also now banned by an elementary school in Miami-Dade, Florida, in Ron DeSantis's Florida. Back after this. This is the Ron Show on America One Radio. So, we just got word a few minutes ago. And as you hear this this afternoon on America One Radio or whenever you listen to your podcast, it uh, was, I guess, around 3 o'clock or so, we found out that iconic pop goddess, I can't even say enough good things about this woman, Tina Turner passing away at the age of 83. And uh, I think about my mom a little bit of, uh, in that scenario, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit. I don't want to be rude to my, uh, my guest. Craig Harrington joins us, Research Director from Media Matters for America. How are you? I'm I'm great. Thank you for having me. Sorry, I lost my uh, lost my breath just a little bit there. Um, <laughs> we also are are uh, uh, commemorating the one year anniversary, uh, as you mentioned off the air, the Uvalde school shooting, and that one stands out in your mind, huh? I mean, I'm 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 so what's the word? I'm, I'm so chafed by all of these now that Sandy Hook stands out. Uvalde. I'm trying to remember where I was and what I was doing that day when I found out, and it just. I, it's like a collective shrug anymore when these things happen. Yeah, I think particularly at Media Matters for America, at an organization like us, where we not only are watching cable news basically all day long, Mm. but where we are intentionally consuming some of the, some of the really worst stuff in the American media Mm. ecosystem. Mm. um, There are certain days that stand out. You know, when I, when I first joined Media Matters uh, 10 years ago, um, I was, I, I still remember how it felt to be there when George Zimmerman was acquitted for, um, for the killing of Trayvon Martin, mm-hmm. not just because it felt like a miscarriage of justice, but because of while I was watching Fox news, these guys were just celebrating the, the, the verdict and, yeah. you know, the Evaldi shooting coming more than 10 years after what we saw in Sandy hook. Um, you know, I was, that was the first sort of, um, school shooting that really hit me after my son was born. Um, mm. and the, the first one that really made me think about how scary it is to be a parent and how scary it is to be a child just in this country, nowhere else is, do you have to worry about uh, this stuff happening when you go to school? Um, I imagine those are the remarks that president Biden um, is conveying as we, as we speak. Mm. It's so funny too. I grew up, you know, obviously the show is based in Atlanta. I'm based in Atlanta. So I grew up in the South and attended Baptist churches and we kept getting the fire and brimstone speeches about morality and where this country's headed and all that stuff. And it's, it's the very folks within, in my mind, the evangelical Southern, you know, portion of the country that are allowing this sort of 
moral decline to actually happen. The repercussions of moral decline aren't coming from, you know, boys kissing or, you know, <laughs> girls liking each other or, you know, folks who watch, you know, adult video. This isn't the sort of thing that's wielding that axe. It's, it's, it's the permissiveness on the conservative side. And it, it's just, it's flummoxing. I talked in an earlier segment today on the show, how in Georgia, 72% of likely GOP voters will choose a divisive candidate versus anyone who even speaks of unifying the country. Yeah. You know, I, I know exactly what this is like, you know, um, my, my parents growing up were both registered Republicans. I remember what um, I remember what it was like to grow up in, in Cincinnati before the Obama sort of revolution mm. um, that turned the whole county blue. Um, mm. Cincinnati used to be a Republican stronghold. Um, and uh, and it's been it's been very interesting to see over the past 20 years how much things have changed and how much um, how much particularly from my generation and others. It, this change has accelerated. And it's very interesting to see, um, you know, the kind of media backlash, you know, from someone like me. I watch Fox News professionally and they've gotten more extreme as the country has moved further and further away from um, what would essentially be like the kind of <laughs> the Fox new median. Um, they're sort of chasing uh, a vanishing high as cable um, cable subscriptions decline and uh, their viewership dwindles and dwindles. They have to get more and more outrageous to keep people interested. And that's what that results in, in what you're talking about. People who we've known for our whole lives, people, the communities where we grew up become more and more divided and, and people, um, particularly on the right, slide into further extremes um, because that's all that's left as they're kind of chasing this high. It's being driven by a media apparatus that is, most importantly, a for-profit company that is trying uh, trying to pad their bottom line while engaging in this um, as a as a political operation, which you know, which Fox News is, which much of the conservative echo chamber is, and that's why they get more and more extreme, and that's why um, they get more and more opportunistic and. Like you're saying, here we are. It's the one-year anniversary of the Obalde shooting, and and how is it being covered uh, on mainstream sources versus on on the right wing? Well, the right always talks about every tragedy as really an instance where the government's going to come and restrict your rights, and they never talk about how you have a right to life and liberty first, right? Yeah, life, liberty, uh, and the pursuit of happiness. Exactly. I believe those were important words in our founding as well. Yeah, and and those seem to always be be overlooked. You know, everyone is a scholar of uh, of the Second Amendment, and everyone has debates about the Second Amendment. But people ignore the rest of that document, the rest of the amendments. And and actually, this it's kind of funny thinking about scholars of different amendments. It kind of uh, bleeds into what you and I had initially thought we were maybe talking about today, which is a conversation about the debt ceiling and what solutions might be um, that are constitutional or otherwise for for the president to tackle um, and how and how those are being. Uh, discussed in in the media, you know, we've had decades and decades of of um, polarization on either side of the gun debate, um, and the the polarization on on other sides of other policy debates. That's just uh, just beginning to sort of metastasize. And again, living in the South, this feels almost like the Iron Bowl. Uh, I'm hearkening to to the folks that live in Alabama. I lived in Alabama for about 18 months for a radio job, and I literally, when I moved in, they were like, "So are you Bama or Auburn?" I'm like, uh, "Georgia." But they wanted me to choose a side for the Iron Bowl because it, it mattered on that one day and, you know, yeah. for, for football, but like year round as well. We, 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 we seem to be rooting for political parties like we're showing up at a tailgate before a football game. And I don't, I don't know how we, I don't know how we undo it. Uh, but yeah. you're right. We, we, we did not sign on to have that discussion. We signed on to talk about the debt ceiling uh, coverage from, uh, from media, in particular print media. 
And, you know, I, I had a segment yesterday where I just went to town on the local paper here in Atlanta for putting its thumb of bias uh, on, on the weights a little bit uh, when it comes to the Atlanta Public uh, Safety Training uh, Center when their corporate ownership has been donating to the Atlanta Police Foundation. But what are we what are we seeing in coverage as far as the debt ceiling goes, aside from a lot of skimming over the facts to just kind of gloss a D versus R fight again? Yeah, well, one of the most interesting things that we've seen, and, you know, Media Matters, we just published a study yesterday um, there where we had done a textual analysis of print coverage from the five largest newspapers in the United States. So that's the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, New York Times, USA Today, and the Los Angeles Times. And what we found was grading on five different criteria, a majority of these news stories um, in the first half of this month, which were ostensibly about the debt ceiling and the looming crisis, Mm -hmm. um, a majority of that coverage actually failed to adequately inform viewers about what was going on um, and about the important contours of the of the debt ceiling debate. What we saw is that um, most of the times, the fact that Republicans increased the national debt significantly during their time um, in power and the fact that budget deficits were particularly high during the Trump administration, Mm -hmm. most of the time, the news failed to cover that. Most of the time, the news failed to cover that Republicans had routinely allowed the debt ceiling to be increased under Trump. Many of them complained about it and whined, but they didn't actively obstruct it. They let a bipartisan coalition led by Democrats and Republicans raise the debt ceiling. And most of the news coverage ignores that. Most of the news coverage also ignored that um, the Republicans are actually responsible for this looming crisis by taking a procedural vote, what has been done 78 times in the past, just lifting the debt ceiling and turning it into a crisis point for American governance. And if that reminds you of what happened on January 6th with what had previously just been a ceremonial procedural vote to certify the electoral counts and and certify the incoming president, you're not mistaken to think that. Oh, I'm I'm glad you said that. It's an intentional hijacking of a process. Right. No, I'm glad you said that because I think the two are the same, very similar. And in either case, it's their way or if it blows up the country or, or government, so be it. That just seems yeah. to be the mindset, the MAGA mindset. Uh, and, and maybe uh, I had mentioned this earlier this week. We, we need to start throwing the anarchy word around a little bit because it seems like they're more prone to letting things just crumble into anarchy if they don't get their way. As a, as a great irony, this might have been the one silver lining that Media Matters did find in this newspaper coverage is a majority of the coverage actually did point out that the Republican plan, if they don't get their way, is to default on the national debt, which Various economists have detailed over the past, you know, we've been having this fight, this debt ceiling fight now since 1995. Mm -hmm. Every time there's a Democratic president and a Republican-controlled Congress, Republicans try to use the debt ceiling to exact painful concessions from that Democratic president. Mm -hmm. Um, They they did it in 1995, in 2011, and they've accelerated since 2011 with multiple instances of trying to use this debt ceiling to manufacture a crisis to to hurt the Democratic incumbent president. And what we did see is that a majority of the newspaper coverage did point out that the Republican plan now is to default. Unfortunately, um, what we don't see enough of is that if the Republicans actually get their way, you know, in this hostage situation, the plan is to kind of shoot the hostage in either case. If they get their way, right, if they actually, Kevin McCarthy proposed between 4.5 and $4.8 trillion in budget cuts over the next 10 years, 
that's his compromise position. Mm -hmm. His uncompromised position is destroy the entire American financial system and potentially the global financial system mm -hmm. by defaulting on the U.S. debt. The compromise is to merely shave the American government down by 58% over the next 10 years. And, you, and, everything, and we're not even touching the Pentagon at all. Right. Everything outside of defense and veterans. And I believe he also built a carve out for current recipients of Medicare and Social Security. Mm. So if you're currently retired, if you're in the Defense Department, or if you're a veteran, your processes aren't going to get dramatic cuts. But everything else, they're trying to find four and a half trillion dollars worth of, of of cuts, and that is going to be harrowing. Uh, the Center for American Progress did an analysis of this, and they saw that, it, and they found that this would equate to an average of a fifty-eight percent cut across the board for non-defense, non-veteran discretionary spending outside uh, throughout the federal government. There's that is frankly unsustainable. It would very likely manufacture a recession, mm -hmm. and the the lingering effects of those budget cuts, if they were enacted, those would last for decades. The Republican plan is to essentially create a recession and depress the economy, yep. and that's the good option. Yep. The the what they what their other option is, um, is to destroy the whole thing. Yep. Um, and hope that voters blame Democrats for it. Uh, they did this in 1995, hoping to uh, defeat Bill Clinton in '96. They failed. They did it in 2011 hoping to defeat Obama in 2012. It failed. They did it again in 2013 to punish Obama for having the temerity of winning. <laughs> um, and now they're doing it again. One of the first things we saw from media conversations um, in the wake of the midterms, after everyone kind of realized like, wow, Democrats had a much better showing than anyone was expected. There was no red wave. Mm -hmm. Frankly, this was a great midterm outcome for, for the Democratic Party. But because the Republicans have a three, four, five seat majority in the House, mm -hmm. we can expect that they'll use their House majority to create a debt ceiling crisis. People were talking about this in November. They were talking about it throughout the 15 rounds of voting that Kevin McCarthy had to go through to secure his speakership in January. Was and all now about here we this. are. Yeah. And yeah, and now here we are. And the crisis is seven days away. Everyone saw this coming, everyone knew they would do this. And the question is, um, you know, how, how Democrats, how the White House will respond. Um, and it's been very interesting to see, to see how the media debate around the debt ceiling has matured over the past decade. Um, it ought to be better with, you know, 15 years of experience doing this. Um, but, but it is, there, there are some areas where um, you can really notice changes in, in how mainstream coverage of, of the debt ceiling has, has progressed. Craig Harrington, Research Director of Media Matters for America, discussing the slanted, if not poor, coverage of the debt ceiling. We've got more with him after the break on The Ron Show here on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, back after this. We're on with Craig Harrington from Media Matters for America. He is their research director. We're talking about debt ceiling coverage, and we hear so much from the right about how the liberal media is tipping the scales, and yet here we are grousing about how the coverage of this particular story has been so obtuse or so, what's the word I'm looking for, blurred even, if, yeah. if at all, and, and, and seemingly letting Republicans off the hook. I see a lot of infographics uh, on social media, Twitter in particular, and, and Mastodon and Facebook, but the average American doesn't even watch the, the, the nightly news for 30 minutes weeknights. They're getting their news from 
their chosen social media channels. So how does anyone break through with the facts? It is incredibly challenging. Media Matters understands the challenge that legitimate news operations face Mm. in sort of breaking through in the soundbite culture. But what that requires is like most readers don't read past a headline. You're lucky if they read the subhead. You're lucky if they read your lead paragraph. Mm -hmm. And that means that you really have to put the meat at the top. And so when we are doing a grading analysis of how newspapers are covering something, what what we really want them to do is just be honest, just, Mm -hmm. just be concise. The Republicans have manufactured this crisis. Tell your readers that at the outset. They ballooned the debt through their own tax and spending priorities during the Trump administration. Tell your readers that. Don't tell your readers about what Kevin McCarthy is saying today about supposed fiscal responsibility. These are lies. We know they are lies. Tell your readers the truth right at the top because you've only got them for a few seconds. And that's where the media still falls further and further behind. And that's why conservative outrage, that's why it works so well as an amplification engine for conservatives. That's why Fox News is so successful as an entertainment product and as a political organization for conservatives, particularly compared to MSNBC or CNN, Fox gets more viewers than both of those combined. Combined. And there's a reason for that. They're extremely entertaining Mm -hmm. because they just give you the propaganda right at the top. Mm -hmm. They don't worry about nuance. And the problem is they don't do fact either. And so if CNN and MSNBC, if the New York Times, if you're going to do facts, you have to do the facts at the front and you have to use the most gripping way of framing them so that your viewers actually see it because that's what the propagandists do. And so the things that they are landing, the hooks they're landing with their viewers are lies or they are misleading or they're openly false statements or they're things that just haven't been checked and that they don't care to check. And so that's what you're competing against. And I don't think that the media really understands that. It's part of the reason that there's such an imbalance between how powerful the conservative engine is and how um, how far behind the mainstream is. And you can't even make a comparison to the so-called liberal media. I mean, what are we talking about in terms of liberal media? It's not the New York Times. It's like the podcast sphere, mm-hmm. some news magazines that are that are slowly kind of withering. There is a liberal media. But when, when conservatives say liberal media, they mean CNN. Yeah. CNN is not liberal. My retort is always, well, I, I'm, I apologize, but I can't feel bad that facts and data and math and science all have liberal biases. They're, they're steeped in fact. Yeah. That's all. You know, that they don't, they don't work with your feelings. They don't work with your inborn or, or, or learned, you know, biases. That's, that's just how it goes. I guess my my one concern is that I also feel like, and I think Democrats are about three decades behind on this, Democrats don't seem to pick up on the fact that they've not been really good at the messaging and the marketing. They don't have their own Frank Luntz, who knows how to boil things down into, uh, I call them bumper sticker phrases, so that people can grasp onto what is fact and what works for the, the liberal message easily enough. It's totally plausible that at some point, the sort of success that the symbiotic relationship between the conservative echo chamber and the conservative political sphere, it's possible that they kind of overreach and that they spend too much time inside of their own mm-hmm. bubble yeah. um, that makes them ineffective. And I, I believe you might be beginning to see that in the political sphere. I mean, you can complain a lot. And lots of people have complained about Joe Biden like as a, as a politician, but there's no doubting the fact that like 
he's good at politics, mm-hmm. um, like sort of fundamentally, like he goes out and wins elections, you know, mm-hmm. like that's, that's a thing that happens. And if you're looking now at how the media conversation has been framing around, say, um, the, the looming 2024 fight between Ron DeSantis or, and, and Donald Trump, and some commentary has been like, Ron DeSantis is promising to be the most, quote, online candidate who we've ever had. Like nobody has run a more kind of navel gazing, conservative focused <laughs> campaign so far than DeSantis. He is fighting about stuff that the public in general does not know about and does not care about. Right. And when they learn about what his positions are, like banning abortion after six weeks or burning books, um, taking them out of your children's public libraries, mm-hmm. they're scandalized by that. They're shocked by it. But this stuff works inside of the echo chamber and it doesn't work on the outside. And so this is sort of a long-winded way of saying, like, maybe being trapped inside of the Frank Luntz cycle isn't a long-term successful strategy for the GOP and their right-wing allies. Maybe operating on the outside actually provides some some clarity. I hate to sound cynical about that. We've been hearing about the death of the GOP for a long time now, and they just get stronger yeah. and stronger despite their own shortcomings. They have a 6-3 majority in the Supreme Court. They will always have the state lines that give them a, a Senate bias. They have gerrymandering. They have governor's office. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, again, I hate to sound cynical about, you know, this, this, the beginning of the, I don't even want to hear that because it just does never, the, the beginning never seems to happen in the beginning of the end of the GOP. You know what I mean? It's certainly true. You know, we, we haven't seen, we haven't seen it come to fruition yet. Um, but there are certain instances where you see the right wing media taking out and staking out positions that are openly harmful to their mm-hmm. political allies. Mm-hmm. And a bet, there's no better example of that than how Tucker Carlson, uh, who was recently fired by Fox News, but until he was fired, he was the most influential person in the Republican Party as someone who was ostensibly not a member of the party. He was the head of the most important political organization in the United States, Fox News. And then, you know, he lost his employer's $800 million and said a bunch of really offensive things to people who were his bosses and he didn't realize they're his bosses. Yeah. And then he got fired. Now he's on the outside looking in. But when he was driving the bus... He drove it into a brick wall in the mm-hmm. 2022 midterms. Mm-hmm. Everything Tucker Carlson advocated for and cared about and the politicians that he openly endorsed from his purge of Fox News, they all failed. And that messaging lost. And he actually kind of reflected on it a couple of times. He pointed out on his own online streaming show uh, on a handful of occasions when he was interviewing guests, he said, like, you know, I'm out of the political strategy business. I'm not very good at it anyway. <laughs> and that's true. He wasn't yeah. uh, hitching their entire train to a conductor like Tucker Carlson and hoping that he had the right instincts ended up being disastrous for the GOP. Now, they still have the Supreme Court. They still have governorships. Mm-hmm. They still have gerrymandering. But increasingly, they're being led by a right-wing media ecosystem that is not reflective of the nation as a whole. And whether or not that can continue to be successful indefinitely, it really just remains to be seen. We're, we're way too early in the game. I keep reminding myself, it's not just about polling. I see that Biden's numbers aren't great and it seems like the Democratic Party and his campaign are just banking on it being a rematch of Trump v. Biden. Right now, Trump leads in that head-to-head, but I have to remind myself it's just polling and it's a little early. Anyway, Craig Harrington, Research Director, Media Matters for America. Hey, thanks for joining me. I appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you so much. Their analysis of media coverage of the debt ceiling and more can be found, mediamatters.org. That'll wrap the Ron Show for the day. I'm going to go spend the rest of the evening maybe listening to some Tina Turner. In case you missed it, she passed away today at the age of 83. My mother loved Tina Turner. What an iconic pop soul singer. 
performer, even actress, an amazing biography to overcome all that she did to become the household name that she became. Anyway, back tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com. Podcast links, blog archives, more, ronshowatl.com. We'll see you tomorrow.